Welcome to the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show, the piggyback to our very first guest show of 2020, captured with Colton Herta earlier this week, doing this listener Q&A on a Friday evening, sad evening, having learned today that one of my musical heroes, Neil Peart, drummer for Rush, died at the age of 67, so... Although I don't know if there is a dark beer named after Rush, I do know that I was able to get a hold of another bottle of North Coast Brewing's Brother Thelonious, named after the amazing jazz pianist Thelonious Monk, and their Belgian-style Abbey Ale. Bottled Bebop, as they call it. So, closest thing I could come to a genius musical-related bottle of very dark beer and so i am about halfway through this pint and it is delightful and i'm doing my best to keep happy thoughts about dear neil i guess coincidentally our guest earlier this week young mr herda a drummer himself so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that brought to you by cooper tires the justice brothers torontomotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA, you might give it a listen because the kid is always his magic. And there you go. We're going to get into your questions right away here after we do our normal little dance. Mention that as we've been, I don't know, I think a year and a half for quite a while since TorontoMotorsports.com became an integral part of what I do with the podcast We have been giving things away each week just as a way of saying thanks. And so the mechanism for that is on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page when I send out my weekly request for questions. You all fire in a bunch of great stuff. And I go back and look at the previous episode and see whose question got the most likes. And it's a pretty simple democratic thing. Whoever got the most votes gets a free t-shirt or a mug or some stickers or who knows it all depends what our friend Derek Koska as my voice continues to crack it's been doing it for about a month I don't know what it means but I apologize but this is my listener Q&A show where anything goes and I just leave all the nonsense in I would otherwise edit out uh our friends at Toronto Motorsports Derek Koska the fine owner there tends to just throw in a lot of good stuff so Nick, drop me a DM with your email address. I think I might even have an email from you from, I don't know, a couple weeks ago I haven't responded to. But regardless, do me a favor. Send me an email with uh, your, send me an email, send me a DM. Get me your information. We'll get you sorted. And Toronto Motorsports will send you some fine stuff. Last week, our winner, Jim Kaiser, I got to get back to you and your note to me as well. So it's been a little bit of a busy week, friends. My apologies there as usual. Other than that, uh, got a little bit of driver news coming. I'm not sure if it's Monday, uh, but I filed that story here today. It's, I will admit it's nothing huge, but just another driver confirmed in a position with a team. So that's a good thing. Uh, found out that the out-the-door price for the aero screen is a little bit more than uh, anticipated, at least in the interview I had in September with IndyCar, they put the anticipated price at sixty-ish thousand dollars, 
and have heard from more than one team that the, uh, <clears throat> should we say the adjusted number, correct number, whatever, however you want to phrase it, is more like 80 grand. So, yeah, that's, I don't know. If you're trying to save your money to get an arrow kit, I'm sorry, arrow kit, I might have said that. I'm leaving it in. Arrow screen. Good Lord, I'm not drunk, but I should drink more, so I am. The arrow screen it's ended up being about 80 grand instead of 60. And while that might not sound like a ton, if you look at the overall budget to go IndyCar racing, uh, it's it's still, I would say, missing the mark by a fair amount. And if you have two cars, five cars, uh, imagine an Andretti Autosport with six-ish cars and backups for those. So you need 12. So 12 times 80 is, man, we're writing more or less a million-dollar check for arrow screens. So... Yeah, um, hmm. uh, that's that's not just a rounding error, unfortunately. But as we employ my favorite phrase from my favorite Colombian IndyCar champion Juan Montoya, it is what it is. All right, let us get rolling here with your questions. And we're going to start with Robbie Bergren said, Hey, Marshall, on a scale of one to ten, how confident are you? that Delara will deliver a package that will be more like a 2007 Panos DPO-1, which launched with some small problems, but was acclaimed by the drivers versus the Delara DW-12, which was launched as a poor driving car. I am confident that it will be better. I think I got into that in the last episode or two of the Q&A. There are some pretty smart people at IndyCar now that weren't there before when the DW12 came to light. And I am confident that Jay Fry's general approach of trying to build a coalition of agreement will be a thing that brings race engineers and some of the designers and folks on the team side as well into the conversation. There's just a lot of really smart people who have worked with many, many IndyCar chassis before. Different brands, different eras, different everything. And I'm telling you, it's not as if Delara doesn't know how to build a good car. They certainly do. But the last one was so far off base, missed seemingly just about every performance target that they had hoped or boasted they'd be able to hit. Uh, I know that IndyCar moved the bar quite a bit as well throughout the process it just was it's a broken thing more or less from start to finish so i think in this case robbie we just have a totally different administration uh i boy other than yeah really just trying to think of from a senior management to the engineering and technical side i don't know if there are any carryovers and so this is where my confidence is I wouldn't say it's at a 10 at delivering a Panos DPO1 type of car, which is just amazing. But I'd say I'm in the 7 to 8 range. There'd have to be some really, truly extraordinary things done to hit that DPO1 type level. But I think we're going to be okay, and I think we're going to be in a pretty good place uh, once this arrives. Uh, Let's see. 
Ryan Ward, Marshall, if you had to place odds on Floyd and Carlin fielding their planned two cars each at St. Pete right now, what would they be? Ryan says, hashtag me personally, the official hashtag of our podcast. He says, I feel like once we get past uh, the early parts of the year, the chances of that happening have dropped significantly, considering neither team's announced one driver, let alone two. You got a couple other questions. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Yeah, the the thing going on with Foyt, as I understand it, is they don't have all the, the sponsors buttoned up yet. I don't take that in a bad way, Ryan. I believe it's just a case of there's still some irons in the fire, and before they announce to the world everything is signed and ready to go, uh, they want to explore a few more things uh, to see how much money they could potentially bring in. So that's on the Foyt side. I wrote, uh, did a little update, kind of silly season part one of this new year where I have heard we're going to have four drivers across the two cars. Keep hearing we might see Charlie Kimball for the full season in the number four, replacing Mateus Laced and a combination of Sebastian Bourdais, Tony Kanon, and Dalton Kellett splitting the 14 car. It occurred to me that provided that does happen, would Sebastian be the most successful driver the AJ Foyt racing team has had since AJ was in the car? Um, I, if I'm forgetting someone, uh, please tell me, because I've actually been trying to, just without doing proper research, rack my brain. I know that there are folks that have done amazing things while there, Kenny Breck and yada yada, but in terms of someone with multiple championships in IndyCar driving for the team. I don't, I can't think of many, if any, since AJ was in his own cars. So provided that comes to pass, that could be a pretty cool thing. I just don't know how many races Seb will be in the car. Uh, the, the quote rumors that I hear is Kellett might be the one doing the majority of the races this year. Um, but anyways, we will have to find out here, hopefully in the coming weeks, uh, IndyCar spring training is what today's the 10th yet yeah, starts in 31 ish days, 32 days from now. Um, it's almost, it's not too far away. It's a month away. So we're going to have to hear plenty on the Carlin side, uh, spoke with Stephanie Carlin, Trevor's awesome wife. And she said all the rumors about us selling our stuff. That's nonsense. We will be at spring training. We'll be in for the full season. So, Taking Stephanie at her word, uh, and there's no reason not to. Uh, that appears to be handled, Ryan. Uh, let's see. You also ask, what's holding back the coin Vassar Sullivan thing from announcing Ferrucci? He's got backing from Clydell, ACI Dynamics, and David Yearman. Uh, he's constantly at the team shop. Was in the AIM Vassar Sullivan pits this past weekend at the Royal Before the 24. Is, this, is there any chance this deal doesn't happen? Not that I know of. I have no idea to offer Ryan as to why the team would wait. Uh, so they probably have a really good idea that I can't figure out. So let's go with that. But yeah, Santino will be in the car alongside uh, Alex Palou, uh, our man, really good man. Eric Cowden will be engineering Palou. So yeah, things are more or less buttoned down there just waiting on some formal official announcements so that everyone feels groovy about it being 
locked in place because they said it was going to happen. Chris D'Amato, MP, any chance we will see IndyCar going back <clears throat> to multiple chassis developers like we had back in the 1990s? Hashtag me personally. I love seeing the different bodies. I realized that at the end there, there was really one dominant designer. Uh, but is that a possibility or one that's even being considered? I do not know, Chris, if it's being considered. I cannot see any way that we go back to multiple chassis. The stomach to go down, go down a different path, go down a road where there might be some individuality that might pay off a little bit if you were to choose the Lola compared to the Renard uh, for many years, or who knows, a Penske or a Swift, or we just, those days are gone. <laughs> if you tell IndyCar team owners that there's a risk they might choose the wrong chassis. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's not even a thing. Uh, there are so few team owners who have the money to recover from choosing the wrong chassis and therefore not winning that no one even wants to entertain that idea. So I truly hate to say this, Chris, but that era that you and I and many others witnessed, which was amazing for its individuality and the choices. We just need to celebrate those times for having been with the knowledge that I just do not see it ever happening again, sadly. Uh, Nick Fletcher says, MP, is that a Danny and Gaius reference in the new logo? Well, it is. And I should also mention, I hope you enjoy the new little music bed intro for this year i changed that up at the start of every year and i spent about two hours trying to find something and i kind of dig this one it's a little different but i'd like to think what we do here is a little different so uh there's that on the music bed for the week in indycar and yeah this is absolutely a danny and Gaius reference with the new weekend sports car logo for 2020 part of the challenge i don't mean a real challenge i mean you know it's not one of those things in life that's truly that hard but trying to come up with some sort of color or livery to use on the logo that is not one of the ones of the current cars in the field because although there are some awesome liveries that will come to pass that we're seeing in 2019 or i'm sure we'll see this coming year this coming season uh, it's not a tribute show to any current car or team, but also don't want to just do like, oh, let's just make it white or red or green. Oh, the first one is red. My bad. Uh, so just decided to look back and try and find a retro livery that I liked. That was neutral. Uh, it wasn't an old school Pennzoil one. Um, although we might do that, uh, come month of May for a little something, but anyways, just trying to find something, Nick, that I liked, that was retro, that we could apply on the new car drawn by Roger Warwick with the arrow screen in place, and just happened to be looking through some photos in my little archives and found some Ted Field Interscope Racing uh, black with the purplish, bluish, reddish, whatever those little gorgeous stripey things happen to be and sent that to Roger, and uh, he fired back what we have. So, yeah, 
And so we'll do the same next year. Just try and find something cool and unique that isn't um, clear or anything that would be associated with what's in the field right now in terms of a livery. And we'll probably do a couple more this year. Um, I had him try one with the 1990 uh, Domino's Dutch Boy, you name it, livery that Ari Leindyke drove to Victory Lane at Indy 30 years ago. And while I liked it, I didn't love it. So that's a bit of an unused one. But anyways, yeah, uh, good old Danny on the gas, man. Um, pretty cool. Let's see. going to go to Lance Snyder, MP on a previous episode. You said that IndyCar owners essentially looked down on drivers who couldn't get an IndyCar ride, yet went full-time sports cars as a backup. How can they look down on those drivers uh, when they wait so late in the game that the drivers are completely handcuffed? Hashtag me personally. I think there's also a degree of, quote, well, if you can't or won't have the supremely capable and race-winning driver, I'm going to wait until it's very late so no one else can. Do you think this is the case? Uh, I don't know if I'd put it there, Lance. There is a <clears throat> There is a bit of a weird thing with how this plays out, and maybe go back to high school or if you went to college go back to college there is a bit of a club mentality akin to being in the dating game having a boyfriend having a girlfriend i mean at least i think for many in high school that was a time where you might have had your first real serious boyfriend or girlfriend and at least as i remember it there was just a bit of a different class if you were in that game seen as part of that dating pool you were a little bit further along maturity wise and maybe regarded differently looked at as oh okay interesting and if you weren't there at least in my experience and what i've heard from others there was something along the lines of oh so nobody wants you huh okay well i guess that uh says something about you doesn't it might be really simple, but I would probably put it closer to that, Lance. The, oh, someone else wants you? Well, that's that's something for me to look at and to covet. And, oh, you, nobody does? And or you were dumped? Well, what's wrong with you? What'd you do? Uh, should I be concerned? Should I even bother talking to you or messing with you? Um, I think that might be closer to the heart here of what we're seeing. And... In very few cases have we seen a talented IndyCar driver go to sports cars full-time and then come back and have a full-time career. I'm actually really, truly struggling to think of any in the modern era who've been full-time. I know that we've had situations like a Ryan Briscoe who came back and did some part-time stuff, some fill-in stuff, and you know we, we've seen that isn't a new story. But the full-time thing, yeah, there just seems to be this weird schoolish type thing of if you're in the club of the coveted and uh, you're dating, then, hey, wow, all right, well, you're someone to definitely consider. And if you're not or you've been dumped, uh, being on the outside is not a happy place if you're an IndyCar driver in that regard. Let's go to Greg Liversedge. Hey, Greg. So it seems like from fan feedback I've seen, the decision to tighten up the rules of working on a car under red flag conditions hasn't been a popular one 
any chance based on feedback <clears throat> that IndyCar will revisit this? Uh, no. Um, I would say this is one of those things where, you know, fan opinions are awesome. They just don't always apply because, you know, this is a case where IndyCar thinking that the guideline that they put in place is something that would have discouraged teams from doing it and realize that after the system was gamed a little bit at Pocono last year, even though they handed down 10 lap penalties to Rossi and what Hunter Ray, I think couple drivers uh, whose crew worked on the car during the long red flag. um, They just realized that, you know what? We don't want this to be something that is openly exploited. If it is a red flag, other than connecting the battery to the cars and the fans to cool uh, if needed, um, don't touch it, period. And if you do, the new rule says, you're done. So knowing that the reason to work on a car during a red would be because it has crashed, you could say, well, you're already halfway done if not mostly done because your car has damage and needs repairs so if you do want to get back in the only way to do that is to wait if you want to go home (laughs) and your team owner won't let you um i guess the way to kind of defy that and and circumvent your own team is to start working on it so indycar can throw you out of the race you go oh boop sorry guess i gotta start packing so uh uh, your note here where you said, I'd love to see teams scrambling to rebuild a car under red flag conditions to get back in the race. Seems like a positive for sponsors and teams to be able to get back out and be competitive. I love a race within a race. I hear you. Just, I think this red flag thing, Greg, is a little bit out of bounds. Uh, if we have a case where there's been a big pileup and there's been a crash, well, this attempt to circumvent the rule being done more or less to try and, I don't want to say incur no penalty from being caught up in a wreck, but minimize the penalty of the competitive penalty. And, you know, the the reality is something bad happened. And trying to go around a rule to make that not a thing, yeah, I, I don't, I agree with this. I think, I guess I never really processed it prior to this, but yeah, uh, I can't think of any reason why it wouldn't have been or shouldn't have been just straight. You are not allowed to work on the car during a red flag, period. And if you do, you're no longer participating in the race because no one else is. And once you crack, once you, if this is cracked open and kept open, you know, granted, the rule said minimum of two laps or whatever it was. They ended up applying ten laps. But you know, if you say, "Oh, I think we have uh, we have uh, broken shocks on the car at the back, something internal broke." Yeah, yeah, that's it. Because you've seen you tried something with the rear damping for the race, and I'm talking a long speedway type event where you're going to consume many hours racing, Pocono type scenario. I mean, heck, you just start getting into things where you're really not intended to. Oh, yeah, I need to work on the back of our car. I'll take the two-lap penalty 
during this red and because yeah we uh some broke inside the rear shocks yeah that's it uh so we're we've got another set of shocks that we've built up or had or we wished we had two options to go with drivers told us man this a i hate it and b we can see the car is a little bit slow yeah yeah we broke some sure Uh, pop that engine cover off and replace those rear shocks yeah you go down two laps you're gonna get those back through yellows and in theory your car should be faster and should be more capable of being competitive and all of a sudden during a yellow i'm sorry during a red you've taken a nominal penalty to make a performance upgrade lied and said that oh there's something yeah there's something bad broken inside you don't really have to declare as well you can just start working on the car um not like you have to say hey can i break a rule and they go sure break that rule and you get the permission and then you do it you just do it so i'm good here greg with indycar saying it's red you don't work on the car period Uh, josh fromer says what are you hearing about kyle bush running the indy 500 this year Uh, i'm hearing nothing josh hearing absolutely nothing Uh, i would say that if this were to happen a team would need to go and acquire a lot of money knowing that kyle is not someone who is driving for a manufacturer in nascar that is competing in indycar would say that this is something where you're not going to have a manufacturer uh, saying yep we'll put up the money for it he's in a joe gibbs toyota if he was in a joe gibbs chevrolet boy i think this might be a pretty easy thing to make happen if m&ms decides they want to see him race in the 500 which would be great then that'd be amazing uh, just as we had GoDaddy decide they wanted to sponsor danica on her farewell with ed carpenter racing uh, that ended up being a financially prosperous thing for ed's team but uh, th- that's a bit of a outlier farewell for danica uh, kyle i think could be amazing truly amazing uh, but knowing that he drives for toyota it's going to be a little bit hard for michael andretti to have both of the bush brothers in one of his cars knowing that he is aligned with honda and there's no way that toyota is going to let kyle drive a honda at the indy 500 or anywhere else so uh, i can tell you one thing our man Robin Miller was on the phone with Tim Sindrick, Penske Racing president, earlier in the week after this little nugget came out. Uh, or, I mean, we already kind of knew, but regardless, uh, when this thing became a thing, and Tim actually said, hey, could you do me a favor and just tell people we are not running him? He says, I've gotten like 20 calls from people saying, so, you're putting him in a fifth car for the 500, right? He says, we're not okay love the guy fantastic all those things we're not running kyle bush in a fifth car so just let it be known so if it's not him who would it be carpenter again i don't know uh could it be mclaren arrow sp um again could be but money's gonna have to be there and most teams are looking for Five hundred to seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a top flight Indy five hundred seat. So great option here, but that money is not just sitting around easily uh, to make this happen. Let's go to Don Davis. 
I love this question, Don, and I'll do my best to not be a dick in answering it. He says, uh, if I'm at a racetrack and only have my phone, is there an app and a lens add-on that you could recommend that would give me a decent close-up, high-speed picture? Don notes that I have a Samsung Galaxy Note 9. No and no, Don. Uh, your phone is not a camera. It will take pictures. It's not a camera. Uh, it is not meant to do the things that you are asking it to do. So could you spend a lot of money in some sort of stabilizing system and lens add-on and all kinds of things to take uh, some photos of a race car at a racetrack? I would guess, maybe, but I don't know what to say other than if you want to take decent up close high speed pictures by the tool that is used to do that um i don't know uh, i'm a photographer so i shoot photos using photographic equipment and f- action photography i should say with that uh beyond that i couldn't tell you the first thing nor have i ever owned a samsung so um we just say that if you are keen and having such imagery, do what you should and look up and find a Canon or Nikon or Sony or there's a, there's a variety of DSLRs, prosumer stuff that shouldn't be too expensive that should give you some options. Uh, but would just urge you to not look at the thing you speak into and have conversations with as the thing that should be used to take action photography. Uh, let's see. Our man, Jamin Tuttle. Marshall, what storylines do you think will be big in 2020? He said 2019 had a few come out from left field. Any predictions for where the completely unexpected stories might come from? Huh. Not really, my man. I I think we've been blessed with some really... A lot of shockers, uh, a lot of big stuff here. I don't know of any right now that jump out as holy crap. Um, I, mean, I think there, there's some developing things possibly on the future engine side. Um, yeah, there's another thing that might be a thing uh, between IndyCar and another series, uh, might, might, I wouldn't put it super high on the realms of possibility here. I mean, there, there's some things that could, but they're nowhere near, uh, being ready to come out of left field and surprise the things we're hoping for announcements from Roger Penske's ownership management team saying we've found more sponsors we've raised prize money we've raised the leader circle uh, we are, are bringing more money into the paddock so everyone is a little less on edge about how they're going to pay for things um you know we're going to hopefully hear something about a third manufacturer really wanting to come and play here soon those are the hopes Jamin. I would not say that I know of any that are just ready to go. Um, yeah, check back with me on this. There, there 
could be some things that develop, maybe a driver or two coming in that um, haven't been in IndyCar that would make us happy. But I truly don't know of any right now that jump out as, oh, yeah, that's brewing, and I can't wait for people to know about it early in the season. So there's that. Uh, let's see. Don Davis also says, just wondering, is the screen part of the aero screen still OxyCore made by PNG Industries or is it made by Red Bull Technologies? Um, no. So the first version, Don, was OptiCore, uh, and that's made by PPG. Uh, this new screen is made by PPG, and it does not have a brand name. It's just a multi-layer laminate polycarbonate and i asked jay fry many times is there a informal name it's referred to as and he said no uh so at least for now there's no specific name but it is made by ppg let's go to our man jordan darwin this is marshall which indycar reporters would you like to see on an indycar timing stand calling the race for a driver Seems like a job that looks easy from the outside, but actually has tons of complexity to get right. Yeah, I love this one, Jordan. Well, we have a little bit of a problem here in that there aren't many of us. We're kind of dinosaur-ish in that, I don't know, are there five of us? Six IndyCar reporters total? That's myself and Miller. We're both at Racer. Uh, our racer.com editor, Mark Len Denning, gets out to a couple races, but before he took this role at Racer, he was Autosports IndyCar reporter. So, again, it's primarily Robin and I. But So if we're talking about people who travel and go and do this and wake up each morning thinking about IndyCar stories to write, it's Miller, it's me, it's our man David Malsher from motorsport.com. Happy congratulations on your wedding, by the way, mate. Uh, so that's three. I believe Bruce Martin, who I would be genuinely lying if I said I knew who he was working for because he tends to, you know, he, he ends up working for a lot of people. Uh, but the fact that he has work is a good thing. So that's four. Um, we used to have Jim Aiello from the star, but no longer because... He's a trader and sold out and covers the Colts, but that's good for him. He'll, he'll earn better money. Um, who am I forgetting? And I mean waking up every day. I don't mean does this a little bit. I don't mean sits at home and doesn't really, you know, might get out to one or two races a year. You know, anybody can do that. And I'm not speaking ill of those who are in that scenario. I'm just saying that. You know, if you are a reporter, you show up and report uh, cutting and pasting press releases and or uh, doing this whole thing from your spare bedroom or whatever for a living, except for that one or two races you get out to. I struggle, would struggle to be called a reporter if that's what I did. So in terms of those who are on the ground showing up and regularly doing this, there's like four or five of us, Jordan. So I wish there were more so we could truly f put a lot of people on timing stands. I think Malsher would be the only one among us 
who would actually do a fairly good job at this. I used to do this kind of stuff, so I'm kind of taking myself out of it. Um, and if it wasn't, you know, calling a race, it would be doing uh, fuel strategy or race strategy or I realize you said calling the race for the driver. Um, yeah, I th- Miller has no idea. Uh, the fact that Miller knows which direction pit lane goes left or right at each round, that's just a, a beautiful thing. But kidding aside, uh, the strategy thing, I've never really heard Robin mention so much, so I'm not going to put his him on any stand unless there's a team that you want to fail. Um, and he would readily admit that that's what would happen too. As for Bruce, I don't know him enough to know if he knows anything about this. I don't think he does. He, When I hear him speak with people, it's either about racing or food, usually of the barbecued variety and brisket. Um, actual <clears throat> complexities of racing, strategy, and when to pit, why to pit, short filling, uh, double stinting tires, so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, boy, here's the thing, Jordan. Um, there was once a time where reporters really did their best to get stuck in and learn all that they could about all facets of the sport. Journalists getting behind the wheel of race cars, not pro or anything like that, but just, hey, shoot, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to report on the L.A. Lakers, I should probably at least learn how to shoot a basketball, wouldn't you say? Um, I maybe need to figure out how what a play is and how they call them and why you would call a play at this time and not the other. I maybe need to understand a little bit of the strength and conditioning side to get players ready for the game. I need to, again more than just being able to write a report that says so-and-so shot the ball and it went into the basket. Um, There used to be that kind of mindset for reporting on motor racing. Wouldn't say everybody had it, but it was just more pervasive. And I just haven't seen that. So the idea, the reason I love this question, Jordan, is the concept of most reporters knowing what the hell they're looking at in terms of the cars, <laughs> what the cars are, what's beneath the bodywork, what the things do, um, much less strategy and what any. Yeah. And I'm not claiming like I'm special, man, because the reason I'm so good at doing all that is there or I'm so good at doing all that is one of the reasons I'm a reporter. But yeah, that's just not a thing. I wish it was. Um, back when I was doing a lot of sports car reporting for speed, we had a new guy that I hired, John DeGeese, and he, a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm, love, really liked racing, uh, from the reporting side, really didn't know anything else had, didn't demonstrate any interest in anything else. So among the first things that I did, uh, in that first year with us, was at Petit Le Mans for a day. I attached him with a prototype team, and he was the tire assistant. And it was a dirty, grueling, grimy day for him, and he hated it. 
but I just thought he needed to do that, and he ended up writing about it. That was the premise for it, uh, attached to a team for a day to be a crew member to report back on what it's like. And on top of thinking that it would make for a good read, I just wanted him to at least say for one day in his life he got to see the inside of a race operation, even if it was lowest man on the totem pole and just busting tires and slinging them around and, you know, wearing yourself out and sweating like a fool. At least you got a feel of what it was like to be part of a team for a day. Hopefully a little bit of the camaraderie. They fed him. They let him eat. You know, uh, he didn't come back to the uh, media center to take breaks. I mean, he's truly a crew member for the day. And uh, I was just happy that he was able to do that. So would love Jordan for more reporters to do that just to go drive a car and go, oh, okay, wow. I Now I know what understeer is, real understeer. Uh, oh, okay, this is why the mechanics getting ready for a pit stop put the tire here and the wheel gun there. And this is the spacing you need to do this properly. And this is when that happens. Just it's really complex, intricate stuff. So hopefully I can answer this in the future as maybe more reporters, up and coming reporters take the time to do those things. Uh, let's see. Joshua Ponce says, happy new year's MP. Thanks, Josh. What are you expecting to see in the first open test decoder for the arrow screen? I expect to see a lot of conversations during the first day, if not second day, as driver cockpit cooling is worked through frantically as depending upon the height of the sun in the sky and the time of the day and all those things as drivers get accustomed to angles of glare and, you know, uh, this is going to be a, a fascinating thing. Uh, if there is wind, it'd be interesting to get feedback on how that might move the cars around a little bit since we have a larger piece for wind to hit crosswind in particular and create some yaw moments. Um, telling you, knowing that the Coda Spring training event, Joshua, is an open media. It's the first big media event of the year. Everybody comes out, and the day before the the first test running, there's a whole media scrum, and they meet at some hotel in Austin, and there's all this, that, and the other. And uh, telling you, uh, with this new thing coming, where we know from testing that while many things have been good, uh, there's, you know, not everything's been great. I'd love to hear that teams had a chance to go run this on their own, figure it out, and show up at COTA more or less ready to go. So the aero screen was already solved and tailored to the needs of their driver from a cooling standpoint. Uh, and again, anything else that might need to be addressed from a, a vision standpoint fact that that's going to take place for the majority of teams for the very first time at the spring training event where all the media is going to be there Uh, my concern is there might be a lot of driver a b c or d is not happy about this or that or complains about this thing and you know there might be some that ask whether it's ready to be implemented or not um it would not be a surprise if some of those things happen. 
would also not be a surprise if IndyCar said, if any of you say that to the media, <laughs> we're going to fine your ass. Um, I think that's about it there. Uh, let's go to the mayor of Moose Town. Hey, mayor. Uh, having, with Andretti Autosport, having six to eight entries, including that by association with Meyer Shank in the Indy 500, is there a point reached by where there's too much data to analyze? Different drivers have different preferences and have to think all data is not applicable. Guess too much data is a better option than not enough? Uh, there's some general data here for sure that would be of interest, but I feel bad for the, the DAG, the data acquisition geek or geeks who have to try and manage all of this information for it to be used by race engineers, performance engineers, drivers, and so on. But now there's really not an issue here. And the reason being is this when Alexander Rossi, by the way, who's doing a really cool thing by auctioning off his Bathurst 1000 helmet to uh, aid wildlife affected by the fires in Australia. Uh, When Rossi is done for the day, he and the awesome Jeremy Millis, not only talk through everything, look through their own data, but they will certainly have a peek at the data from the other cars. Um, Ray Gosselin will look at what Ryan Hunter Ray uh, has. Eric Bretzman, who's their technical director, will certainly look through all, put together a little report saying, okay, it looks like this general change where we went up in this regard or down here, or more of this, less of that, that was a benefit, and here's some of the data to prove that. And these things over here that we tried, here's the data that says across multiple cars that was not a success. So going forward tomorrow, the bad things, not doing those anymore. We've learned that that general direction, not a thing. We are going to push more in this other direction. So what you end up getting here whether it's six cars, eight cars, doesn't matter however many, is you have each entry doing its own thing. They will certainly participate in the group effort. Hey, tomorrow morning we're going to go out and try this thing that uh, the team thinks might be a good direction. And if so, we'll report back and say, yeah, I loved it. Uh, Why doesn't so-and-so try it now and give us their feedback? Um, and we'll try this thing over here. And you know, there's a lot of that that goes on. But there's also the name, the various sponsors, Gainbridge, Napa, DHL, so on and so forth. They're paying for their individual cars to go out and succeed. And so there is also the underlying point here where the Rossies and Hunter Rays and Marco Andretti's and Veaches and so on, they have their own job to do despite terabytes of data pouring in, uh, certainly if they have a question about whether they might try something or not, they can look through and see what their teammates have done or just simply ask. Hey, did you do this? Did you not do that? What do you think? Get a little bit of information. Hey, my guy is saying this. The car is doing this here, and that's, that's weird. You heard anything from your guy or your guys? And again, they will collaborate and try and help one another. But it's not a case of there being some sort of, you know, marching orders. All right, everybody, everyone's doing the same thing. And we're just going to, it's going to be a, a 
union-like effort. Uh, you also have drivers, as usual, who like different things, like their cars to handle differently from one another. So that means that what one driver might say, this is the best. Another one might say, yeah, that doesn't work for me. So what you end up with here is just a case where, yes, reams of data, reams of digital data. But you have each individual entry that stays locked into what it needs and will use, look through that data and or just ask other engineers, ask the other drivers for feedback on specific topics if they are off in any area to just expedite to getting back on track. And then at the highest level, you'll have a technical director type look through things and say, okay, group, this is something I want all of us to work towards. This is an area that is going to work for us. So in your approach to what you're doing, these are the areas we suggest that you do and or don't do. So it's more of that. Let's go to Roger at IndyFan61. Tell me Toronto Motorsports is making new sticker of our new logo for this year. Indeed they will. And new shirts. And yeah, so yep, that also for our new Week in Sports Cars logo. And yeah, every year we do this. New stickers, new logos, new t-shirts, new, new, new. Uh, let's go to Dan Gallagher. Related to the comments I made on Indy Pro 2000 and the lack of a step, uh, with Honda, Honda's USF4 and USF3 is consolidating USF2000 into Indy Pro 2000. The more logical move versus eliminating Indy Pro 2000. Uh, the answer, I would say, is no. Uh, the feedback I just get more and more of with this Indy Pro 2000 car and this is more from team owners, is I just don't really need it so much. It's not a big enough step to really warrant it being a thing. So, and granted, if you have 15 to 20 entries, and that's going to end up being a strong thing, then it'll continue to stay. But if it doesn't, then, as I was mentioning in my little rant, whenever that was, Dan, we need to consider cutting the ladder down to two steps. Um, USF 2000, I would say, is perfect and has been perfect for decades. Uh, it's been called a variety of things. Formula Continental, F2000, FF2000. Now, in what it's been for a little while, referred to as USF2000. It is the perfect introductory step to open-wheel racing, uh, <clears throat> with wings and slicks. <sighs> Thank you, Thelonious. You wetted my whistle. Uh, it's the perfect introduction to serious wings and slicks open-wheel cars. The USF4, even the USF3 cars, they're just not it. They're more of, if you're coming out of karting, then it's a, a soft step up. It's not a hard step. USF 2000 is really more of the hard step, and that's good. It's meant to be a training category for sure, but it's also meant to really delineate who's meant for this and who isn't. We're talking success, wins, championships. It's also that filter where you find out, all right, if a kid's kicking butt in USF 2000, pretty strong likelihood they're going to keep moving and 
have potential of getting into IndyCar if everything works out properly. Moving from USF 2000 to Indy Lights, that's a big jump. I get that. But at least from what I'm hearing from team owners that have Indy Pro 2000 efforts and those team owners whose voices and opinions I respect, they say it's just not enough of a bridge of a, of a ladder step between USF 2000 and Indy Lights. So if it's too close to USF 2000, well, maybe just making that leap up to Indy Lights is the thing that you should do. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, that's my thoughts, Dan. I was trying to add one more thing that was smart, and it felt like it flirted with my brain a little bit, and then it went away. So we're actually motoring along here fairly well. Um, let me see how far we into this little episode here. Yeah, shoot. We're what, 50-ish minutes or so? Yeah, look at this. We're making great time. I'm so happy. Why do I say that? Well, I've got about a half hour to go, so maybe 40 minutes at most. Um, we're going to go to Dead on Nuts, who asks, why are Zach Veach and Marco Andretti and Ryan Hunter-Ray basically non-competitive with the same equipment? That's that's an interesting take. Um, I'm not sure Ryan how Ryan Hunter Ray got lumped into that. Uh, would say that's massively inaccurate. We do have a situation where in 2018, as an IndyCar rookie, Zach Veach showed us a lot of moxie, a lot of potential. Uh, he and his race engineer Garrett Mother said definitely seemed like they uh they were doing good work together and there's a lot of potential being shown that felt like it was going to move forward i mean zach had a, what a fourth at long beach a fourth or fifth at gateway um finished i think 15th or so in the championship this past season perf- Big, big sophomore slump. Big. Uh, didn't crack the top six, top five, I don't think. A um, couple crashes, which really was not a part of his rookie season. I'm not saying they were all his fault, but there were some that weren't, you know, he, he could have made better choices. thing that really took place this past season is he and his race engineer, Garrett, really whatever was working in 2018 wasn't working and uh, there ended up being a switch late in the year and i know that results wise it didn't just turn into a huge turnaround but there definitely seemed to be more happiness and more pace even if there weren't necessarily the results to show now you all might not be surprised to hear me say i love zach veach great guy great kid he's just he's a phenomenal human being. Do I think he is going to win an IndyCar championship? He has not demonstrated that as a realistic outcome. Is there a potential? Of course. Has he shown us through three-ish years in Indy Lights? I mean, he ran third, uh, won a cup, what, two, three races in 2014? Last year of the old chassis formula 
Um, didn't really have much. I think the following year did a little bit of IMSA came back in 2016, uh, won a couple of races for sure. Um, Bilardi was not necessarily the, uh, that Bilardi entry was not necessarily the, the big title winning, uh, car in terms of potential, but he had a very good year also as a veteran by that point, I think he finished fourth in the championship. So, you know, there, there's certainly something there. Does Zach Veach belong on an IndyCar grid? Does he have talent to run an IndyCar, land some podiums, maybe earn a couple of wins throughout his career? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're talking many drivers have won a race or two who've been in the series for quite some time, uh, who aren't necessarily ones who are fighting for championships. The the sad truth is the podium only holds three people. And you know, there's gotta be more people to fill out the rest of the positions. Doesn't mean you're a bad person or lack talent, just means that you might not be someone whose talent is going to put you in the frame to be on that podium at all times. That so far has been Zach's story. Very capable driver, not someone who is constantly make the other drivers hate him acting a fool, making big mistakes, knocking out half the field. A good, serviceable IndyCar driver. Is he going to get the most out of his Andretti Autosport Honda compared to an Alexander Rossi or a Colton Herta or Ryan Hunter Ray? I've seen nothing to tell me that that's a reality. So that's just got to be rooted in truth here. Wouldn't say non-competitive, just, you know, if the guy finishes, what, uh, he had a couple of top tens, you know, that's, (laughs) if that's all he achieves in life is finishing inside the top 10 in IndyCar like six, seven, eight times, that's a pretty amazing life right there. Um, Marco? We've spoken about Marco many times on the show here. We don't know why he is not more successful than he is. We know that he has the potential and talent. He just has connected with it very infrequently. We're talking from the first race of a year to the last race of the year to then equate to a quality finishing position in the championship. Uh, That's a great question. I don't know if it'll ever be answered properly. The greater point here, though, is the equipment isn't really part of the the thing. Meaning, the car itself, every chassis in the IndyCar series has a potential of being up front. Now, if you hand that to a team that is not very good or not very experienced, it's going to be at the back. If you hand a really good team a car we know where that's going to go but is the driver capable of getting it there Uh, the drivers i think sometimes we forget they're the least equal part of this entire almost completely spec formula we are in they're the greatest variable obviously teams have their variables as well usually on the engineering side Uh, Some engineers are certainly far better than others, and their performances show it. Well, 
most of the drivers in IndyCar are so darn good. I think we sometimes forget that, yeah, <laughs> all it takes is being a tenth of a second slower per lap, and you are out of the Firestone Fast 12, or especially the Fast 6. You are qualifying 14th instead of 6th or 7th. The margins for success have become so slim. I mean, the differentiator between, yeah, we were having a great day, and, oh, man, that was hot garbage. It's no longer the half-second, second, second and a half that it was back in the day. The air, the margins are frighteningly small. So this is why I'm pushing back here a little bit on the, the Veach side in particular. The Hunter Ray side, that's nonsense. Uh, but on the Veach side... This is something where if that kid's talent means he's a tenth slower per lap than a Rossi or whomever or two tenths, it's not much. But in modern day IndyCar, it's like dragging around an anchor behind you. Uh, And I think that might lead to a little bit of a a false narrative uh, in terms of who is truly skilled and who is truly not. Um, Yeah, there we go yet again. Uh, let's see, Joey of the Priuses, is there anything you can reveal about Dragon Speed's road course and oval drivers? I was thinking of their new driver, Colin Brown, as a driver with significant oval experience. You are spot on, Joey. Uh, there's nothing there yet. There's just a desire for there to be something, and there's effort, um, as Colin has told us on the record before, to try and find the money to do this. Uh, so... Can't say that he's the only person... Uh, that might do something with Dragon Speed on the ovals, or just in general. I don't think I'm saying anything too crazy that there's a certain Canadian driver who uh, makes his own beer and recently got married. And I mean, Actually, I don't want to say he can dance well, but he has shown that he can dance uh, with instruction. Um, I've heard his name mentioned as a possibility with something on the Dragon Speed side. Wouldn't run too far with that, Joey, just because I've also heard his name. Just we're talking inquiries mentioned with Dale Coin Racing, Chip Ganassi Racing, pretty much any IndyCar team that has the name racing in it or motorsports or team in it or autosport. Uh, I would say you're safe in assuming there's been conversations about could we do the month of May together, the whole indy gp 500 and what about toronto so yeah look forward to this information with dragon speed and the six races are going to do because they bring a little bit of fun Uh, they're they're very irreverent they love what they do um they have a significant ego but not a we're the best ego they have a we love doing this the rest of you fools complicate this too much. Let's just go and do our best, and I bet you we can beat more of you than we should. That's the same team mindset I had with the vast majority of the ones I worked for, which tended to be smaller to midsize. All about punching above your weight and seeing how much you could take off people that you really shouldn't be able to. Uh, I recognize and see that same thing in Dragon Speed and love it. So uh, another good little note, just a sidebar, uh, have heard that highly, highly respected IndyCar veteran Vince Kramer 
is now part of the Dragon Speed IndyCar, and I don't maybe even the sports car side, but uh, part of what they're doing. And I'll tell you, uh, he was with Harding most recently. He is someone who I talk to. I've never worked with Vince, but he's someone who I, I speak with friends of mine in the paddock that have worked with Vince, and they just could not offer more glowing praise. The best guy I've ever worked with. He, he's he's truly the best as a team manager, as a coordinator, as a you name it. This guy, he's just pure rock star. So that really encourages me as well. Um, also have an idea of what they might be doing engineering-wise. Not confirmed, but uh, I believe they're going to... They're looking to upgrade themselves in many, many ways. And they're only doing six races this year, Joey, but they're doing this with a goal towards it becoming full-time. And instead of just trying to get through the year and do six races and see what they end up with and how to improve, what I've seen and heard about is a team that says, yeah, we're only doing six, but we want to be doing 17 or whatever the number is. So let's start kind of putting that together now so that when we're ready to, we've already got it. We have those people, we have the infrastructure, and it's ready to go. And we're not just spending the year learning and trying to figure out you know, where our ass is. Let's go to Dan Gallagher says, Marshall, should we read anything into Hyundai renting space in Speedway, Indiana, the former Harding Steinbrenner racing building as related to a third OEM? Well, I am unaware, Dan, of Hyundai renting space. I am aware of Brian Herta, who runs Hyundai's sports car stuff in the u.s renting that um that is a brian herd autosport thing that is not a quote hyundai thing now granted this is the facility where brian will be helping to sell and facilitate spares and all kinds of stuff related to hyundai's uh, touring cars that compete in both world challenge and imsa Uh, but this is again this is brian herd autosport doing this and i would say if we were to hear Anything related to Hyundai and it being an OEM and doing bigger things in racing, uh, it might be a little bit down the road and more on the IMSA side, uh, based on what I've heard most recently. Let's go to Mike Stoops. says, I've seen headlines from Honda, Mazda, and Chevy stating that full electric cars are not the future in their mainstream road cars. Not sure if I've seen Chevy say that, Mike. Um, but if you have... Send me the link. Uh, actually, I think I read the opposite from Mark Royce. Uh, but send me the link. Uh, he says, you've seemingly implied that the current proposed IndyCar hybrid formula is not attracting OEMs. So what does IndyCar to do? Well, I don't want to repeat the same kind of soapbox moment brought to you by Joe Tonto's quarter retrieval service that I've done a couple times in the past, but it's Probably the same general premise, though, Mike. The auto industry is in a place where it is no longer able to say what it is going to be three years from now, five years, ten years. We think a mostly electric industry is what awaits us. We just don't know exactly when. So we know that some manufacturers are 
super yay on the hybrid front. And we know that others say, no, hybrids, old time, old tech. We don't want it. We don't need it. Where this has direct ramifications on IndyCar and IMSA, and IMSA is a separate thing, uh, and I won't get into that now, but it will be the subject of an article here sometime soon. IndyCar is in a very different position today than it was however long ago when it announced it was going hybrid. And the year before that at Indy, when they announced the new engine formula, that had no mention of it being hybrid. The automotive industry has changed fast enough. Not necessarily in what's on the showroom floor from one year to the next, but just the projections, the goals, what they collectively think they'll be doing or might be doing, the things they've invested in or ramped up their investments in. Those things have changed radically and dramatically in terms of speed and concept. This all comes back to a central point, Mike, where when you say, so what's IndyCar to do? What IndyCar needs to do is abandon a restrictive, narrow concept of what its next engine formula will be in terms of using alternative fuel, alternative propulsion, saying it's going to be a spec hybrid system that is this size, made by this company, that puts out this much power. That's the last thing they need to do. And that's based on feedback from the auto industry saying, don't paint us into a box. Don't tell us this is what you have to use. And then you have to and can only use that for five years once it comes out. So IndyCar has done nothing wrong here. IndyCar just needs to react in the same way where they're, 2.4 2.4 twin turbo V6 formula announcement and what was that 2018 had no hybrid mention at all in a year later or so we have the, oh by the way we got to go hybrid cool that's them reacting to missing the boat on what manufacturers were wanting we now in a I think even shorter amount of time had a collective change of mindset in the automotive industry that we we don't know how much the internal combustion engine is going to be a part of our future. It's this really interesting time we're in, Mike. Unlike decades, a hundred years before, it seems we've been in this thing where from one year to the next, five years down the road, you could say, "Yeah, it's going to be a internal combustion engine." using gasoline or diesel Uh, just pick it one of the two it might have a turbo might have a supercharger uh it might have you know one of those two things hey it might even have a little hybrid electric boost add-on something but that's it now we don't know we really don't is it hydrogen is it going to be a fuel cell of some sort is it going to be a carbon neutral fuel Is it going to be a true kinetic energy recovery system or a heat energy recovery system? 
Is it going to be all electric? Is it go? Who knows? Again, I don't know. We don't know. And that's what makes this time we're in so problematic for IndyCar. If they were to say, manufacturers, now going into 2022, since you don't know what you're going to be a year from now, we're going to try and paint a super narrow window on what you can bring in terms of technology two years from now and then make you keep it for five after that. If this was 10 years ago, Mike, they could absolutely do that. No one would push back. No manufacturer would argue. It'd make total sense. I wish they had done this 10 years ago with hybridization. They didn't. By the time they want to introduce it, it's going to be old tech, according to many manufacturers, or at least take away the spec angle of it. Let the manufacturers have some freedoms in the hybridization to personalize things a bit, do things a bit differently that appeal to their marketing needs or R&D needs. Make it optional. Uh, Just not in a placement where I see that IndyCar can thrive with manufacturers if they're overly restrictive and overly overly limiting because the automotive industry is not in a place where they can say, yep, that makes sense. Well, we're going to be in 2025 with engines. They don't know. And if you're forcing them to do something that could become old before we even get there and have them saying, well, we're going IMSA, but we're going somewhere else where we have more flexibility to promote and do meaningful R&D that's going to help us. That's the overarching concern here. If those justifications are missing, IndyCar is going to have a hard time having manufacturers involved in this changing, rapidly changing technology landscape. Uh, let's see. Carlos Villalobos. Hey, Carlos. says, Happy New Year to your wife and I. Is any development on the engine manufacturer front? A, re- a revision of the rules or an announcement soon? I know of no revisions coming Right now, I'd be very surprised if we don't hear something around the Indy 500 about maybe some tweaks to the rules. Uh, And I'll leave it at that for right now. Let's go to Kevin Pinkston. He says, Happy New Year. Recent comments from Michael Andretti suggesting taking a million dollars out of an annual IndyCar budget. says, besides going uh, to a list of standard or approved parts, uh, say for shocks, is there any chance of ditching the carbon fiber brake discs for steel units would be an option for the series they certainly could kev uh the the carbons are more expensive you also get longer life out of them though i mean steel is certainly cheaper you also lose performance which is probably not part of what jay fry would want in this fast and loud formula he is trying to develop so cars going slower And lap times being slower would probably defeat uh, the overall sales pitch that they use for a differentiator with IndyCar. I don't think the numbers would add up to the same by any means, but you would be consuming your steel discs at a much higher rate than carbon. So would just say that taking a million bucks out of the budget, uh, 
you're not going to get there with something like this. It's going to be taking a race or two off the calendar. Uh, If you divide 17 races by the approximate $6 million per, you can see how taking two races off the calendar would get you down the road towards that uh, 1 million reduction. I mean, obviously not all the way there, but you know, it's a, uh, it is certainly a start to uh, helping in that regard, I guess you could say, Um, you know, if you just consider those two races, again, using that budget number um, that I referred to, I mean, that's something where think about it from this standpoint. So if we've got 17 races and you're spending about six million bucks to get to those races. Again, average numbers, it's about three hundred thousand per. Obviously the Indy five hundred is the big financial drain of the season, but if you can take two races off, save yourself about six hundred grand right there, um, that might not be the worst thing in the world. I it's not like I want IndyCar to do fewer races, but to do this and michael is spot on every team owner even the wealthiest ones would tell you boy if you knocked a, a million off of the annual budget it would truly make our lives much easier you get there one of two ways you either take things away to reduce the budget or you bring in more money to increase it so how do you get that million bucks by taking things away to bring that million dollars down or do, as I mentioned earlier, we hopefully have Roger Penske and his people finding money to increase, basically double the leader circle from a little bit over a million dollars a year to two million a year. Uh, that, I think, would be, I think there'd be almost a more realistic chance of that happening than knocking races off the calendar with the general approach we have right now, Kev. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Eric Carlson says MP love what you're doing for IndyCar with this podcast. Well, thanks man. So my question is if you could bring back the IROC series again, the international race of champions, basing it off of the 2019 racing season, who would be your 12 drivers out of North American racing? What car would you choose to have them race? What four tracks would you choose for them to race at? Who would you pick to win the IROC? Oh, all right. Eric, it's a lot of homework here on a Friday night at what is now 7.41 p.m., and i got to get dinner going here for my wife and I. Uh, those 12, good Lord. All right, so this is where I show my ignorance and not following NASCAR as much as I should. I mean, what? Uh, Kyle Larson, for sure. Kyle Busch. Um, two others that I'm forgetting and, and or can't think of because I'm ignorant. On the IndyCar side, Newgarden, Rossi, Pagano, uh, who should I throw in as a Herta. On the IMSA side, uh, Dane Cameron, uh, who else? We throw in Montoya for sure, although he probably wouldn't care. Um, Boy, who else do we throw in there? Uh, Trent Hinman, who is one of the champions for Mike Shank in the GT Daytona class. Uh, who else really Oliver Jarvis, I think not well known, but a rocket for Mazda and 
Got to take someone from G.T. Lamar for sure. Just a murderer, murderer. Richard Westbrook, ex-Ford Chip Ganassi driver, out of a full-season ride, which is just dumb. I'd throw Westy in there. Not the champ, and I know that the Porsche team were champs, and those guys are amazing. But I just like Westy because he has a don't give a F. He, he's a DGAF all-star. And if he couldn't win, I have a feeling he'd take some people out. Where? I have no idea, brother. Um, I don't know. What car? Let's do it because they need the help. The Indy Pro 2000 cars, the Tatus Indy Pro 2000s, uh, the PM18s or whatever their chassis designation is, uh, they'd be pretty quick, pretty fun. It'd be a blast. I fear they'd be taking each other out all the time. They wouldn't get hurt, hurt, but, you know, um, could be some good, you know, spare sales. As for where, most sport, also known as Canadian Tire Motorsports Park, because it's crazy and rolling fast and open wheel people just need to start thinking about that place, even though I don't think it's safe enough to go there right now uh, for us in IndyCar. So that would be my answer, Eric. And I wish I had more time because I'd give this more thought and do less pulling it out of my butt. Up next is Jonas Magnuson. Jonas says, MP have been following IndyCar since the mid-1990s. And I really appreciate the racing, but I do think the TV production is really poor compared with, for example, Formula One. Are any improvements in this area to be expected? And I asked Jonas to give us some examples because without specific issues raised, it's hard to say whether any improvements would be considered. He says, a few times last year, a driver could lose a number of positions in a short amount of time without replays or the commentators mentioning it. Right? So is that poor production, Jonas? Or is that just people not noticing? I don't know. Uh, at least when I think of production and maybe this is splitting hairs, but when I think of production, I think of people making decisions and those being bad decisions. If you're saying poor production here compared to F1 could just be a case where something wasn't seen, uh, or multiple times wasn't seen. Uh, again, I'm just offering generic answers here to non-specific examples uh, let's see, says F1 always replays key overtaking maneuvers. Says there was plenty of overtaking in IndyCar last year that was never shown. I understand this is impossible at some of the ovals, but the same was true for many street and road courses. I think this one, Jonas, might be a, a difference in need and style. I do know for sure, watching, having been an avid follower of F1 for most of my life, that in particular... In recent years, any <laughs> any pass gets the slow motion replay discussion more or less any real significant pass. Not at the front, because that doesn't happen very often, but anything where there might be something that happened gets replayed and slowed and showed in slow-mo and really played up. I think that's because it's out of necessity, my man. Passing in Formula One doesn't happen a lot. Uh, you know, real, the race is moving. I'm not talking the opening lap. 
Uh, I'm just saying, you know, not talking in the pits. I mean, true wheel to wheel. Uh, on lap 14 at turn seven, so and so went down the inside of the other guy and got the position. Uh, you know, that doesn't happen a ton. If we do see it happen, you know, it's often something worth showing because of the rarity. Uh, so I think there's just a, a need that's here that IndyCar doesn't necessarily have because there just seems to be, in general, a lot more passing taking place. I'm not saying crazy amounts, but I don't see so much of a need for IndyCar to highlight the fact that, hey, a pass happened. I do get that feeling quite often, Jonas, when watching an F1 race of like, oh my God, okay, really? The pass for 13th place is something you felt the need to cut away from whatever's happening up front to show us that Kimmy finally got by Magnuson or whomever. Sorry, maybe it's your brother. Slight difference in spelling, I believe. Um, You know, I can tell you that it feels very contrived with about half of the cutaways and slow-mo passing maneuver replays in Formula One. And it does to me, hashtag me personally, feel like it's just being done because we don't get a lot of these, so we better play it up like it is so we have some of those to show. Uh, I don't think that's the same uh, in IndyCar in general. You also mentioned, finally, the graphics in F1 show a lot more interesting data. For example, tire deg, G-forces, heat maps, etc. Can't argue with some of that. Uh, You get G-forces in on the IndyCar display, the heat maps. Uh, I th- again, I think that's just infrared, uh, using the infrared option with the overhead camera tire deg. Yeah, that is something I watched that last year and it was just nonsense. I mean, it's predictive. Uh, there, there's so many assumptions going on here. Uh, that wasn't real information, uh, because it's almost impossible to quantify. Um, but yeah, I would say the other thing here overall, Jonas, maybe to consider some of the, this note might apply to what you're mentioning. It might not apply to others. Formula one is a vastly rich series. (laughs) It is, it is built upon billions of dollars every year. And it shows in the overall production, the just everything. Uh, when you watch a Formula One race, when you look at everything that they show you, when you look at the clips that they produce, you look at the F1 TV app, I mean, it is clear they are spending a lot of money on this. They're making it look great. They have a lot of flexibility because of those finances to do great things. Formula One's a lot different than IndyCar, man. Uh, IndyCar just doesn't have the money to make itself look like Formula One in terms of production. It isn't there. And Roger Penske buying it all doesn't mean all of a sudden there's zillions uh, waiting to be used. So I'm with you. I'd love to see all of the pretty shiny objects that come with a Formula One broadcast show up in an IndyCar broadcast. Just need to accept the fact that we're talking completely different financial bases 
making one look like the way it does versus the other look like the way it does. So maybe that will explain something. Uh, let's go to Ed Joris. It says, say IndyCar restricted <clears throat> spending on... Damn it. All right, another sip of the beer, uh, which is almost almost gone, and it's not fixing the problem. I don't know what my deal is, folks. This is It's really getting annoying. Uh, if it's annoying you, uh, I can tell you I'm right there with you. So say IndyCar restricted spending on suspension development either by going spec or going to an open-source sealed component system. Um, wouldn't the main beneficiaries be the drivers and the engineers? Um, if you cap spending on suspension R&D, wouldn't the best way to increase performance be to hire the best drivers and best engineers you could? And wouldn't this be a very good thing for the series overall? Um, yeah. Uh, or maybe got to reverse engineer this a little bit, Ed. So in almost every situation... No, in every single situation, teams hire the best drivers they can or accept the money from the best driver they can find who can pay to allow their team to exist and hire the best engineers that they can find. So nothing changes here. Uh, You have... Teams that, based on their financial ability, are unable to hire the, quote, best. And if Lewis Hamilton became available tomorrow, said, all right, Mercedes, let me out of my contract. There's not a single IndyCar team that could afford him. Not even Penske. No one. He's the best driver in the world but nobody can afford him. So what do you do? Well, you get the best you can afford. And same with engineers. Just understanding that a Penske budget is very different from a Dale Coyne racing budget. And doesn't mean that those who drive for Coyne, both of whom are paying, whether it's out of their own pocket or from sponsors' pockets, benefactors' pockets, regardless... Those drivers are in the two coin cars because money is given to the team by people attached to those drivers for them to be able to drive. Engineers are hired to run them. Uh, best available, keeping in mind that Olivier Boisson, who will engineer Santino Ferrucci, is already there. He's phenomenal. That's great. Of the who is available after Craig, Craig Hampson left, uh, they found and were able to get a hold of Eric Cowden. Very good choice. If Ben Bretzman, Simon Pagano's race engineer, was available, I would say, no disrespect to Eric, that Ben would get hired before him, provided Ben's price tag was something that the team could afford. Maybe Eric's price tag, um, just no information that I have here, just saying, Maybe Eric is someone who both availability-wise and price tag-wise fits Coin's budget. So uh, the making changes on the shock side, have more money to buy, to get better people. I mean, 
this situation's already in hand. Um, I know one thing that apologize if, if you hear the mild whatever in my voice, but I know shocks have become the rallying point for many that they're too expensive and we got to do things. I just keep saying this. Unless you make the entire car spec, there's always going to be a expensive damper. <laughs> it might not be the dampers, right? Nikar might say, well, those are spec. But this area, if we anything that gets left open in a mostly spec formula, that is the thing everybody runs to and spends the most money on. So if they shut down dampers but leave open front wing development, <laughs> even more money, five, ten times the amount of money, whatever amount, I mean, even because it's a way more expensive thing to do, you know, it just gobs of money is are going to be spent on front wing development from team to team to team to team so either indycar locks everything down and we go back to the old formula which certainly didn't bring a lot of fans or we just accept the fact that you know maybe instead of allowing dampers to be open but ruling out things that are in use today in road cars and electronics things that might actually get manufacturers and aftermarket companies to want to come in and spend and partner with teams and bring money to those teams just the focus i would say is the thing that needs a rethink hey you can do more or less whatever you want in this one area but we're not going to let you go as far as we should which would make it relevant to road cars, which could then bring manufacturers and aftermarket business to your doorstep. It's kind of the three-quarters pregnant approach here. You can do it, spend away, have fun, be individuals, but we're going to cut you off the knees from doing anything business-wise. That's the fallacy on the side here with dampers. So as for the rest, Ed, yeah, just really not a thing. Um, Ben Cohen, he's just a nice guy. I don't know you, Ben, but you're clearly a nice guy because you always mention stuff like this. It says, Happy New Year's. Uh, hoping you and your wife have a much better 2020 than a 2019 and hope to see you to track sometime this year. Thanks, Ben. I, I do indeed hope to see you and many others at the track this year. Can you go to our man, Jeff Loper? Hey, Jeff. It says, Happy New Year. Wishing you and your wife a much better 2020 as well. Says, I've been a lifelong IndyCar fan and an avid follower of your podcast for some time. Says, thank you for what you do. Come on, guys, stop it. Um, thank you, Jeff. Says, it's always enjoyable. This is my first time asking a question. That's the thing that makes me really happy here, Jeff. Says, in the spirit of growing the IndyCar fan base and tapping into the common love of racing and cars that we all share, have you ever considered having some of the big names in the YouTube automotive world as guests on your show and vice versa? I'm thinking specifically of such YouTube personalities as Doug DeMuro, Shmi150, CarWow, Carfection, and maybe Ratey's Rides. I saw recently that Graham Rahal was a guest on Shmi150's channel, and it was a great episode. Might be interesting to have these guys on your show to discuss racing cars and IndyCar in particular. Similarly, they might be interested in having you on their shows as a racing expert. Just an idea. I need your guidance on this, Jeff, and dear listeners. So, raising my hand and, and admitting 
fully enjoy YouTube, not a lot, and I think I'm old enough generationally for it to not be a massive part of my life. All the names that you mentioned, I've never heard of, just as I'm sure they have never heard of me. So there's no kind of disrespect or I'm being cool and ranking on them or whatever type deal. Just I I really just don't spend a lot of time on YouTube um, other than the first We Feast channel. I love that one. Um, and I mean that. It's that or maybe Conan O'Brien's YouTube uh, channel. I, I'm just not there that often. Uh, my life, fortunately, is pretty busy. And so the things that I like, I like and do. And there's just not a lot of boredom to fill in with what I think of as going to such channels. But that might be ignorance. It probably is ignorance. It is ignorance. I'll just own that, Jeff. So you and others tell me. I don't know. Again, I couldn't tell you what's on any of their channels, what they do, what they don't do. Um, maybe I should spend some time finding out. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I tend to gravitate towards those who are in the general sphere of what I do. And if they are, then I am ignorant for not knowing them to be in the racing space. Have to also raise my hand and admit that the quote, YouTube personalities, YouTube influencer thing uh, I don't have a really high opinion of that. Um, if anybody can do something, I don't, you know, some of you know that I've been a lifelong, pretty much lifelong hip-hop fan since the very, very, very early 80s. I don't listen to a lot of rap, new rap these days, it, almost none. Why? Because individuality is kind of sort of lost. Because just about everybody can make a beat and just about everybody can rap. And so it's really hard to find truly unique, hard, hardened, original voices, ideas, music in and among something that has become just democratized. Is that a word? Something that has become so widespread that just everybody does it. I'm not saying any of the names you've mentioned here, Jeff, fit that. I'm just saying that the idea of turning on a camera and talking into it, anybody can do that. And that's probably why I don't look to YouTube personalities um, at all for anything. And it might just be an age thing. Uh, This might totally be Generation X guy uh, just missing the plot altogether. So if that is the case... And Doug DeMuro, Shmi 150, Car Wow, Carfection, and Rady's Rides are all people and or things that I you think I should engage with because they're cool, have interesting takes, or bring something on the IndyCar front that could be good. Let me know. Uh, I embarrass myself on a regular basis with my ignorance. So if I can actually... Uh, scrape away a little bit of that here in this instance that would be a bad thing at all so uh thank you for the the question and the submission here jeff and keep them coming man uh you you've cracked open a, a door to something that is clearly i know nothing about so uh educate me man tell me uh, what i should know and i'll go from there uh john Wolnar, 
I don't know if I murdered your last name, probably. Uh, recently, NBC on uh, IndyCar and NBC showed a computer programmer modding a video game to have current schemes on an IndyCar game from the 1990s. As cool as that is, does it speak to the state of the sport in the public eye that we haven't had a video game since early 2000s? I know we have IndyCar and iRacing, but what about the casual gaming IndyCar fan? Do you think Penske's influence will finally shoot IndyCar into the cyber world? I love the word cyber. It is just, it'll never stop being 1995. Um, John, I don't know. Uh, Again, this is such uh, a worn-out topic. Not you or nothing to do with anyone mentioning it here. Just this has been going on for so many years within the series. It's such a blind spot. Will an 82-year-old team owner be the one to say, hey, we need video games? Roger Penske's never played a video game. Roger Penske knows the concept of a video game. Um, It's going to take, if anything, maybe his son Jay, well embedded on the entertainment side, to say, hey, Dad, yeah, you guys are kind of sucking here. You need to do something. Um, I don't know, John. I I don't know. I hate to say it. I usually have some sort of take to offer that's hopefully not terrible. I got nothing to offer here, brother. Uh, I, there's nobody with an indie car right now that I know of that has the experience, connections, or will to solve this. And that needs to change, and I can't think of anyone within the immediate Penske ownership sphere that does. So... I'm going to try and ask this soon to see if this is on their radar and hopefully I'll report back. Ryan Bauer says, Hey, I come from a more of a circle track background where you can't work on the cars under red and was surprised when I found out this wasn't the case in IndyCar. He says, is it normal for other series to allow working under red? Uh, no, it's not (laughs) what you've been accustomed to in circle track stuff. Ryan spot on. Uh, I don't know why this was the way it was, uh, but it isn't. So in, let's just say IndyCar has come good and uh, gotten themselves in line with everyone else. Uh, we're getting down to the final questions here, and I genuinely need to run uh, pretty soon. So if I don't get to your questions, don't be afraid to send them back in. Buddy Campbell, uh, you mentioned here about uh, pondering whether IndyCar could run double headers. Uh, efficiently in the same track, maybe run an oval or go to a, a roval where you run the roval and then the oval. Uh, could this be done? Do you think we could maybe even go to different tracks? You know, Friday here, Saturday there, uh, turn a track around, all that kind of stuff. I think so. I, I think it's possible. It's not easy. We know that for sure. We know that the people that, that have had to turn IMS around from the Indy GP in its earliest iterations to Indy 500 practice. We know that that was, yeah, they don't, they want more time, which they've gotten to do that. You know, the one thing I thought of, which again, this is just probably ignorance and stupidity and I shouldn't have thought of it, but so we're trying to think of ways to get more people to come out to just call them road races. I know IndyCar obviously has five ovals, but predominantly it's a road racing series. Is it too crazy to think on this topic, buddy, of converting a circuit and or inviting, trying to get different things to get more of a festival, more people coming out from different walks of life? Colton, in his show, in the show this week, mentioned on a similar how do we get more youth out, mentioned we need to have more 
music more just make it more of a festival uh with racing compared to just a race uh, part of me wonders maybe on the motorcycle side uh, how crazy would it be to try and you know i realize you got to run out a lot of hay bales and i guess other things that are very specific to motorcycle safety but i don't know i mean motorcycles seem to have some of the most passionate and filled races i can think of on kind of the higher end just makes me think there's a lot of motorcycle fans who might be interested in coming out and seeing what a collision of open wheel and two wheel racing during the same weekend whether that could happen you know could that be a a road america i don't again i'm not sure where Part of me just wonders, wouldn't it be cool to bring these two very different worlds of racing together? Tell me if that's stupid or not. Probably. Probably. <clears throat> Probably. Uh, Greg Liver's Edge. Hey, Greg. Says, in a crazy old guy voice, augmented reality, man. It's the wave of the future. Says, I know the LED panels have been a hot, to- hot topic. Hop topic. All right. Uh, and it appears they might not be back anytime soon. Has anyone thought about using cell phone based augmented reality at the tracks to improve the spectator experience? Think of a car and track being able to hold up your cell phone and view the driver team info along with the current running position and lap times through an app using your phone's camera. The technology is already out there and used in numerous other applications like the already incredibly popular Pokemon go. As I hear Rocky meowing in the background, our cat, I don't know if anyone's thought of that, Greg. Uh, I would say that things like this strike me as the kind of options we will have. Rocky, shut up! That's a pretty normal thing that happens throughout the day. Uh, i got to believe these things are coming, man. Uh, It just seems like our phones are our link to everything. So, wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Wouldn't it be cool if you could actually just call into the cockpit? Hey, man! I was like, boy, you really blew it on the start, didn't you? I don't know. Uh, that probably shouldn't happen. Uh, but then imagine if the drivers could call you from the cockpit as well. Hey, you! In the, uh, really, Rocky? You're just going to straight up throw down. All right. It, the show is almost done, and Rocky's hungry because uh, he can smell that I put dinner in the oven. Um Imagine drivers calling you, being able to call you, like point and call you and say, dude, that's the ugliest shirt I've ever seen. Could you imagine Graham Rahal calling and saying, really, you're wearing a Rossi shirt? Just clowning you. I mean, that'd be fun. The the heckling 500 where drivers and fans just snap on each other the whole time. I'm right there. Uh, I'm totally, totally right there uh where are we gonna go next as we wind down we're down to the last page uh i think we're gonna go to scott hodgins as we stick on this topic i think indycar should look at the ongoing interest in led panels and see this not as an interest in something somewhat irrelevant but in hunger amongst fans for its new innovations even if they are stock parts used by all teams i think scott's referring to the mentioned in my loves and hates 2019 how anytime i'd write about the silly led panels it'd become the number one most read story rocky come on buddy the number one most read story on racer for the day or the week or the month or the whatever interestingly jay fry really truly knows how popular they were to those who liked them 
And the thing I've mentioned to him, you might have heard me say on the podcast for years or have written about, this is an area that I just think IndyCar needs to embrace fully. Now Rocky has jumped up on the table in front of me, is sniffing the beer, and looks like he is under fire and being attacked, but he's just running around and caterwauling a bunch. Thanks, pal. That's really what I need. Isn't putting his ass in my face, which is a nice change. Um, But he is trying to bite some stuff that he shouldn't, so pardon me while I take that away from Rocky so he does not eat the cork that came out of the top of my beer. And I'm not editing this stuff out. I'm just keeping it. This is the, the unpolished turd show. Uh, for up each week <clears throat> jesus this is just a train wreck um i've been mentioning for a while now scott electronics open cockpit style information electronics that is the glaring glaring thing missing from indycar they need to welcome the apples and the samsungs and all kinds of people to do wraparound led touchscreen stuff information screens where the led panels once went um this is just becoming part of our lives and uh, i just think indycar needs to accept this and embrace this with the new car somehow so i think you're onto something for sure let's go to jeff bean Hey, Marshall, I'm new to your podcast and love it. Thanks, Jeff. Great for drives up to the cottage. As I'm an IndyCar and IMSA fan, since we get both races in and around Toronto, asked for driver's perspectives on the switch to the aero screen, and I didn't put this in front of Colton. I know it was for Colton. We just have a situation, Jeff, where not enough drivers have actually sampled it, a very small portion. So we are indeed waiting for more drivers to get out and get a feel to get those opinions before we can really provide any kind of meaningful insight from them. Jerry Siddeth says, Marshall, what drivers do you expect to benefit the most from the added front weight the new wind screen provides? Heard the number is round about 58 pounds, Jerry. I don't know if benefit's going to be much of a thing, considering how IndyCar has its ballast rules meaning drivers of smaller size and weight must include ballast in their cars. The drivers themselves don't do it. Their mechanics do that. But we do end up with the cars at basically an equal weight. So with everybody adding the same piece, it doesn't change that dynamic. But the only thing I can really think of, Jerry, is for the taller drivers. The Graham Ray Halls, the Ryan Hunter Rays, who have longer torsos, more weight higher up in their body, and that weight and that portion of their body sitting higher in the cockpit than the shorter drivers, that is mass. That isn't super awesome if we're just talking center of gravity. So... I might think that with the added weight of the aero screen on top of the cockpit being about 60 pounds, that's going to be a pendulum-like effect up top for everybody. But I would think for those drivers who are taller and have more weight higher in the cockpit as well, could make things, could be a little bit more of a disadvantage. I always think of how those taller drivers especially in a single-seater like this, a spec-type car, 
think of them maybe in a small boat, a little dinghy or something like that, standing in a lake. You get the tall driver, and if they start rocking their feet back and forth, that whole upper body of theirs is going to act like a pendulum swinging the boat more left and right or fore and aft if they were to stand that way. You think of a shorter driver lower down in the boat doing the same leg motions, you're going to have less of a pendulum effect up top swinging it left and right or fore and aft. And so that's really what we're talking about here on the racetrack. More weight when you hit the brakes up top, shifting that weight onto the front axle uh, or going back under acceleration or left and right and cornering, etc. We're not talking huge amounts, but these are amounts to consider of that extra weight up high now with the aero screen. Again, I know everyone has it, but um, it just adds more weight up top where in theory, maybe this exacerbates things a little bit for the heavy, the taller drivers with uh, more heft up top as well. Let's go to where are we going to go? Joshua Renneker, you sent in one here uh, about Netflix and a new made-up docudrama. Uh, send that one in next week, brother. i got to admit, I'm kind of on mental fumes, and it requires thinking, and I'm maybe going to fail you on this one. So let's close with Erica Anderson Rosa. She says, Happy New Year. So here's my tweet to you. Last August, regarding an idea for the push to pass, on 12.39 p.m., August the 5th, we have wanted to get your thoughts on making the push to pass time for each driver private and not available to the other teams. <laughs> it was discussed on your podcast that week. And so hashtag me personally, I'm taking full credit for the rule change. Hashtag Rosa rule. Uh, that's great. Well, the thing is here, we often have listeners, fans say, hey, you know, IndyCar should do this thing and they do it. And I'd love to tell you that it's Jay Fry listening in, stealing your ideas and not giving you credit. And we should say mean things to him. I'm not pandering here, just stating the truth. There was for many, many years, a dynamic with IndyCar fans where it was a fairly passive thing. Watched, observed, great. That's no longer the case. Uh, If you're sending in questions to this show, guarantee you, you really like your IndyCar, and you really follow, and you really burrow in and really get all the context and tend to have some pretty sharp ideas that could easily, uh, if not immediately, become things for the series to consider to do better or change or otherwise. So not a surprise here, Erica, that back in August 5th, uh, you were foreshadowing what IndyCar would do because it made sense, and I'm glad that they did it. But if you do see Jay Fry, tell him, hey, pal, you stole my idea. You owe me something. Uh, for sure other than that we're ready to go we're all done with this episode i really do appreciate all the great questions you sent in looking forward to next week's show although i don't know what it will be or who the guest might end up being uh don't know what we're going to talk about but i do have fun doing this and i thank you for sending it in and i thank you for just making this little podcast grow seemingly on a weekly basis All right, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is Marshall Pruitt Podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com. Send me that DM, Nick Vance, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. We'll speak to you next week.